Why don't you turn in your Bibles this morning? We'll be in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 this morning. If you remember last week, we, we spoke a, about Judas. And so, of course, this is a, Jesus with His disciples on Thursday night. Remember, Jesus has been with the disciples now for a little over three years, almost three and a half years. And this particular night, He washed the disciples' feet. Now, if you think about that week, this is a pretty amazing week. This is, you know, He comes into Jerusalem in His triumphal entry. Everybody's praising Him as the Messiah, the Anointed One. Now it's Thursday night. Jesus knows that this is His last moment with the disciples. He, he takes the time to, to show them what it means to be a servant of the Lord by washing their feet. And, and then John is really the only one that begins to share kind of these private conversations. And this is one of them here. Jesus is going to have a conversation with His disciples. If you put yourself in the place of the disciples, think about how they might be feeling at this time. Jesus has told them three separate times that, that He's going to die, that He will be crucified, that He'll rise again. He's told them already and. In John chapter 13, verse 33, that, that He's going away and they can't come with Him. Let me share that with you. John chapter 13, verse 33 says, Little children, I'm with you a little while longer, and you will seek Me. And as I said to you, to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So if you think about these disciples, they're kind of confused, they're upset, they're worried. They don't really quite understand what's going on yet. They don't quite have the full picture yet that Jesus will be taken and crucified. And not only that, to make matters worse, Jesus starts talking about somebody's going to betray Him, right? And they don't know that it's Judas, we know. And Judas is left at this point when he's having this conversation. And then, to add insult to injury, He then says, oh, Peter, by the way, you're going to deny me three times. Now, if you think about where these disciples are at, they're, they're getting really upset. They're troubled, troubled in spirit. And so, what Jesus wants to do in this section is He wants to, to calm their hearts, and what we'll see is Jesus is going to share three things, really just great practical things for them, but also for us. That when things are hard, when things are difficult, when you're troubled, there are promises here that we can hold on to, man. They are rock solid. Beautiful, beautiful promises. Anybody here struggling this morning? Any troubles in your life? Great text. Let's pray for the Word. Father, I thank You for the Word of God. I thank You how You've given it to us, Lord, as an instruction, as a lamp unto our feet. Lord, would You help us this morning to have an open heart? And, and Lord, if we're troubled, if there's been difficulties in our life, Lord, we turn to You even now and ask that You would speak to us through this truth by Your Spirit. Father, we also want to lift up Pastor Carlos in Mexico, Lord. He's got that diagnosis of cancer. And Lord, how difficult it is for him uh, and his family at this time, Lord, and you know, cancer in the kidney, and, and uh, it's a difficult time, but Lord, even he who's facing trouble is trusting in you. Minister to them by your Spirit and your truth, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look at the text, verses 1 through 6 is where we'll begin. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, and in my Father's house are many, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. 
And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So what should we do as Jesus followers, as Christians, when we're facing troubled times? First thing, trust His promise. Jesus has a home waiting for us in heaven. Trust His promise. He has this home waiting for us, a dwelling place, a place specifically for you. It's designed for you in heaven. Now, sometimes I think it's difficult in in this life when things are really hard to to kind of get a grasp on on what we should do. And, and, And what Jesus is saying, sometimes the best thing to do is think about something really that you're looking forward to. And boy, what better place to look forward to than being with Him in heaven. And so what he says to the disciples here is he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. So he's come into Jerusalem, this triumphal entry. They're expecting him to be this this king, this one who's going to overthrow Rome. And and now all of a sudden he's talking about leaving, and and they're really struggling here. In in their mind, in their theology, the Messiah is supposed to come and establish the kingdom then. They didn't understand that there was something else that God was going to do. And then all of a sudden, this, you know, he's talking about dying, he's talking about leaving. Then all of a sudden, he confronts Peter. Now, if you look right above this section in verses 37 and 38 in chapter 13, Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. I mean, think about how disturbing that is for Peter. But not only that, if you think about Peter, Peter was a courageous one. He's the one who actually got out of the boat, walked on water. So the other disciples saying, wow, if he's going to deny him, what about me? They're deeply troubled. They're struggling. And so Jesus, to comfort them, this is for them, but it's for us. Look at verse 1. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. He's saying, Stop your worry. Don't be anxious. When times are difficult, when it seems overwhelming, when the waves are crashing, trust, believe. Believe in God. Believe in me. Now, I don't know if you're going through a difficult time. I don't know if you've been deeply troubled lately. This is the prescription. Trust, belief, faith, Will you trust in Him? This is a call to them to believe. Jesus is saying, when it's overwhelming, when things look like they're lost, you can turn by faith to me. And and what He's trying to do is He's trying to strengthen them. He's trying to give them peace. He's trying to help them understand that there is peace within the storm, that that He's got their back. And what, what I begin to think about when I saw this is, it's so often we turn to the things of this world, right? Can I tell you, you're not going to find peace in your bank account. You're not going to find peace in yoga or meditation. You're not going to find peace in hanging out with brewskis with your friends. You find peace in Him. He's calling them in the same way that, that you were to trust in God, trust in me, is what He's saying. Now, in just a few minutes, and we'll look at this next week, Jesus is going to even take this a step further, and he's going to say, peace is in me. 
In John chapter 14, verse 27, if you have your Bibles open, you can just kind of scroll down. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And then a couple chapters later, in John chapter 16, verse 33, this is right before he goes to the cross. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. He says, in the world, what do you have? Tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So it looks like trouble in this world. When it comes to Christ, for those of us in Christ, it's an opportunity for us to trust. It's an opportunity for us to turn to Him by faith, knowing that He has us. And this has always been the prescription for God's people. Now, I don't know if you read a lot of the Psalms, but I read the Psalms regularly. Why? Because David is always talking about seeking the Lord and trusting in Him. Now, I could read literally hundreds of verses, but I'll read two. David says in Psalm 25, 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, it is in you that I trust. Psalm 31, 14, but as for me, I trust in the Lord. I trust in you. I say, you are my God, and on and on we could go. The same thing that David did, we are to do. When things are tough, we turn to Christ by faith. And so what Jesus does, he makes them a promise. Look at verse 2, he says, in my Father's house, There are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. I mean, what an amazing promise that is. Jesus is is making a promise to comfort them, knowing that right now they understand that he said he's leaving, knowing right now he has said to Peter, you are going to deny me, knowing that he's told them that he will die and suffer. And, and, and sometimes the best way to get over the difficulty here is to look forward to something you really have to look forward to. And he's saying, I have a place for you in heaven. And Jesus is speaking of heaven, and he calls heaven my Father's house. That's so neat. It's so neat to know that, that Jesus is saying that heaven is a real place, that there is a real heaven. That our Lord, who is God in the flesh, He speaks about it in in the first person, that He knows that this is where He's going. And not only is is He going there, but he's, He's going there so that we can know He's there and that there's a place for us there as well. Now, when you look at the way that heaven is described in the Bible, sometimes it's called a kingdom. It's known as an inheritance. Jesus said to the thief on the cross that it's paradise. It's also known as a country and a city, but here He calls it a home. It's home. It's where God's people go to to dwell in safety, in comfort. And Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you. He's saying, I'm speaking the truth here to you. I'm telling you of a fact that there's a place for you. And it has been designed by me just for you. It's special. Now, dwelling places... I don't think it's like what the King James says it is. You know, King James says it's mansions, right? It's kind of nice to think about that. Oh, man, I got this mansion waiting for me. But when you look at that word, dwelling places, it's one word in the Greek. It's money. And it, it literally just means rooms or, or dwelling spaces. I don't think when we get to heaven, we're going to see large housing tracts of mansions. And, and I think what helps us is when you think about the Jewish culture in that day. In Jesus' day, what oftentimes would happen is you'd, you'd have a son, and he'd get married, and instead of leaving the house, oftentimes in our culture, right, they go find their own apartment or whatever. Oh, I have to come back, don't they? <laughs> Beside that point. Um, you know, they, what they would do is the father then, he'd add a room. 
he'd add a dwelling place to his house. And then when they'd have kids, he'd add another room. And, and basically what would happen is the family expanded, the house expanded. Why? It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of family. And in heaven, God's house, he's adding on these rooms for us. It, it speaks of a, a special place for us, a place that he's prepared for us. And, and Jesus says, I go there to prepare a place for what? For you. If you know Christ, it, it, it's for you. It's It's personal. And he wants the disciples to know in this troubled time, in this difficulty for them, that he's waiting for them and that there's a place for them. It's prepared just for those who know him. And then if you look at verse 3, he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's speaking about a second coming here. Jesus is coming back. Now, a number of people have already gone on ahead, haven't they? They've gone you know, through the valley of the shadow of death. They've died, and, and they're with God in heaven right now, those that are His. And, and right before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a rapture. Now, the rapture can happen at any moment. Those of us that are, that are alive, when Jesus calls us, we'll be transformed in an instant. We'll be with Him in heaven, and then He's going to come back and establish a kingdom here on earth. But there will be this dwelling place with Him. Now, when Paul the Apostle spoke of heaven, he, he spoke about it. It's a place so wonderful that words couldn't even express it. And when John the Apostle speaks of heaven, you know, he uses all these kind of metaphors and pictures, and then he kind of runs out of things to say. And so what he has to do, he has to say the things that are not there. And he says there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more night. I mean, what a wonderful place it is for us. It's a and so what Jesus says in verse 4, he says, and you know the way where I'm going. Well, the disciples hear that, and they're still kind of confused about him leaving. And so Thomas, I think he asked the question that all of them were thinking. If you look at verse 5, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how do we know the way? And so you would think at this point, the reality of Jesus' impending death would be understood clearly by the disciples, but it's not. They're still struggling with this idea of him saying, we're leaving and you can't come with me. And they don't quite understand yet this idea about the coming crucifixion. And so what Jesus is trying to help them right now, and I want you to listen to me very carefully here. He wants to make things absolutely crystal clear that if we want to be with Jesus, we can know how to be with him. I mean, this statement that he makes right here is just crystal clear. There's no guessing with this. And he's saying, you know the way. Thomas says, I don't know the way. And so if you look at verse 6, Jesus says this. He says to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, or you could say the Father's house, except through me. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. We have to acknowledge that these words are true. If you have some other idea about heaven or some other way on how to get to heaven, you have to acknowledge if Jesus truly is God in the flesh, which the Bible says He is, then everything He says is true, then these words are true, and they are exclusive. This is the narrow way. He is the narrow door. There is no way to the Father but through Him. And these words, if you're a Christian, should be received with joy. Great joy. Because before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve, they enjoyed a threefold privilege in their relationship with God. First, they had communion with God. 
Heaven is a place where we have communion with God. They also knew God. They knew the truth that flowed from God. And they possessed eternal life, spiritual life. But when sin entered in, they lost those three privileges. Because of sin, instead of joining communion with God, they experienced separation from Him. Instead of knowing the truth, they fell into falsehood and error. And instead of possessing eternal life, they began to experience death. This is what we experience in our human condition, in our natural state. As sinful man and woman, we are separated from God. We are alienated from the way to Him. We are ignorant of the things of God. And we will experience both physical and spiritual death. But because of Christ, because He's the way, the truth, and the life, now in Him, if you know Jesus, if you've accepted Christ, if He is your Savior and Lord, instead of alienation, He is the way to God. Instead of ignorance and error, He is the truth. And instead of death, He is the way to know Him. This is the sixth I am statement. Jesus alone is the way to God. He is the alone is truth about God. And He alone possesses the life of God. So if you want to know God, if you want to know you have a place in heaven, then it has to be through Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no one else. The Bible says there is no other name given among men by which men and women can be saved. It is Jesus Christ alone. And when we trust Him, we know that when we die, there is this place, it's, it's, it's ready for us. And you have to ask yourself the question, are you ready? Neil used to preach, are you heaven ready? Are you heaven ready? Well, you know. You know, D.L. Moody, he told this story when he was a pastor that, about one of this woman in his congregation. She had a little daughter, young little girl, she was only about five, and And the woman got sick, and so the neighbor took the daughter in while the mother was sick, hoping that the mother would get better, and then she'd bring the daughter back. But the mother actually got worse and worse and finally died. And and so the neighbor didn't want to tell the little girl until after the funeral. And so after the funeral, what the the neighbor did is she took the little girl back to her house, and she was going to, as she was getting ready to bring the girl in the house, she was just going to tell her, you know, your mother's no longer here. But instead, the girl ran in the house, and she starts running from room to room, mama, mama are you here? Mama, are you here? And she goes into the kitchen. Mama, are you here? And her mama wasn't there. So she runs into the bedroom. Mama, are you here? And finally the little girl comes out and her mother's not there. And so the neighbor takes her into her arms and says, honey, your mama's no longer here. She's gone ahead to heaven. Well, the little girl didn't want to stay in that house anymore. She wanted to go with the neighbor. Why? Because it wasn't a home anymore. Her family, her mama, wasn't there. And in the same way for us, heaven is going to be a beautiful place. Hey, they got streets of gold, they got the pearly gates, they got all this neat stuff to look at, but that's not what's most important for us. It's home to us because Jesus is there. And He has a place waiting for us. And for many of us, we have friends and family that are there. And so when we die, guys, it's going to be a celebration a true homecoming, a place of rejoicing. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of any of Fanny Crosby's hymns, but in one of her hymns, she says this. She says, Someday the silver cord will break, and I know more as now she'll sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king. 
And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story of being saved by grace. One day, if you know Jesus, you're going to see him face to face. And it will be in full joy and to his glory. What a joy. So what should Christians do when we're facing the difficulties here? First thing, trust his promise. Jesus has a home waiting for us in heaven. There's a second thing. Trust his promise. If you know Jesus, you also know the Father. If you know Jesus, you also know the Father. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are secure in your relationship with God. Look at verses 7 through 11. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you've you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He says, if you have known me, you would have known my Father. So guys, we don't have to wait until we get to heaven to know God. If you know Christ, if you've received Christ, if He is your Savior and Lord, you have a living relationship with the living God. Jesus is trying to help His disciples understand He's leaving, and guess what? He's turning them over to God. And he's trying to tell them, hey, if you've trusted in me, the way you know me, you can now know the Father. How you've had this intimacy with me, you now can have that same intimacy with God. Now, if if I'm a Jew, this is hard for me. Because think about it. The Jews always thought about God as powerful and distant, didn't they? And there were always these barriers to God. Just think of the temple. When you had the temple, you have the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence dwells. And there's a veil between the Holy of Holies. But as you're walking up to the temple, first they have this outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, Jews and Gentiles can be in that outer court, but Gentiles can't go past. Then you go to the next court called the Court of the Women. Now, the men and the women, if they're Jewish, can go into that court. But the women, they can't go past that. Then you have the inner court. The Jewish men, they can be in that inner court, but they can't go past that because now you have the holy place. And the holy place is only made for Levites, those who are priests, And then you have the Holy of Holies. So in the Jewish mind, they're thinking, you're leaving us to him? The guy behind the veil? He's a distant deity. But Jesus is trying to help them understand that now that they know him, now they have this relationship with him as a father, a closeness to him. And not only that, there's no longer this veil, this this barrier Because in their mind, they need some kind of mediator or priest to go before him, right? But what does the Scripture say for us? Jesus is our mediator, right? When Jesus died on the cross and he cried out his last and and he took his last breath and, and his spirit departed, the veil was torn from top to bottom. Suddenly, we have access, direct access to the Father because we know him. And so, what they didn't understand yet, I don't think they fully understand this because the resurrection hasn't happened is that Jesus is fully God incarnate. They didn't understand that He's the second member of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, that He is the exact representation of God, as Hebrews 1.3 tells us. 
And so for them, it's difficult for them because they'd been with Jesus 24-7. He'd taken care of them. He'd provided for them. He'd given them food, given them protection, given them wisdom, given them guidance. And in the same way, he's telling them, you now have this directly with the Father when I'm gone. And so he's trying to let them know, you can now depend on God. Look at verse 7, from now on you know him and have seen him. This is a very difficult statement to grasp for them. And so Philip kind of responds naturally in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Now, now we know no one has seen God except the Son, right? If you think about Moses, he saw a manifestation of God in the cleft of the rock. He saw him kind of pass by his Shekinah glory and And the Israelites in the wilderness wandering, they saw God, they saw Him in the cloud by day and, if you will, fire by night. And so Philip is probably asking for some kind of a manifestation of what the Father might look like. And so Jesus responds to him in verse 9. He says, have I been with you so long and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And this is kind of like him saying, Philip, this is so strange for you to ask me. I mean, don't you understand that everything I've done has been done in the Father's will? So if you've seen me and you've seen the things I've done, then you've known him and you know the things that he'll do in the exact same way. Now, there are three words for the Greek word seeing. This is very important in this little section for us to kind of get a grasp on. The first word is the word blepo, blepo. This is the simplest of them. And if you remember the story when Peter and John, they run to the tomb after Jesus had been put in the tomb and that Sunday morning, they heard that, that he wasn't there and they run there and Of course, John gets there first and he kind of looks in the tomb and he sees the grave clothes. All that basically means you physically see something, blepo, you see it. Well, then Peter, what does he do? He comes in. Now, that Greek word is called theorio, theorio. That Greek word means when Peter went into the tomb, he saw the grave clothes, but he was puzzled. He didn't understand what they meant. He sees them, but he doesn't understand The last Greek word is oreo. This is where John enters in. He sees the grave clothes. It says he saw and believed, or he saw and understood. That's the word that's used here. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me and understand me, then you'll know the Father and understand him. Do you get it? If you know Jesus, you know the Father. And you know the characteristics of the Father. He's not talking about physically. He's talking about all the characteristics, all the things about God you see in the Son. He is the exact representation of the Father. Colossians 1.15 says He is the image of the invisible God. And so what Jesus does, after He makes this point about seeing, He presses them in faith. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me, and the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me, I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. Otherwise, believe in the works themselves. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is believe in His seeing. Hey, you've seen me? You know who the Father is. As a matter of fact, there are two main reasons why you should believe. He's pressing them to believe. He's saying, Look, this is not a blind faith. There are two things about me that are just plain. Number one, my words. My words, my claims. If you want to believe, believe what I've said. Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative. But the Father abide in me, does His work. He's saying, you know what? Believe what I've told you. Believe what I've taught you. 
everything that I've said about myself. And so you just start thinking back, what did Jesus say? John chapter 3, verse 5, he says, no one will see heaven unless they are born again, right? A little later on in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he says, as Moses was lifted up in the serpent, had lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Believe His words. He had just said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He's saying, believe what I've told you. Believe the teaching. Do you trust in the words of Christ? Do you believe that His words are inspired, that they are a scripture, that they are God's words? God breathed. Now, many of you here are saying, yes, Rob, we get it. I'm in. I believe. I've trusted in Christ. But there might be some who don't. And if that's you, then he would say, well, if you're having a problem with my words, then believe what I've done. Believe the works. Look at verse 11. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. All the miracles that Jesus performed, they were performed as a testimony of who He is, that He is God in the flesh, that He is the Messiah. And He did these works to point to Him. Every miracle was done as a sign to point to Him. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 5, 36, the testimony which I give is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And what is His greatest work? He died on the cross. He paid for our sin, and then He rose again. There is a pleading in His voice here. Believe. Believe. And the question that often I think about, it's more than just knowing about Him. Do you know Him? It's more than just knowing about Jesus. Do you know Him? I read kind of a funny story this this past week about a pastor and in his church, he, he, has a, he had a, an actor, a very famous one, who was an actor in uh, the show General Hospital, that soap opera. And the actor's name is Real Andrews. That's his real name, Real Andrews. And so Real Andrews became a Christian in his church, and then Real Andrews asked the pastor if he'd come and preach at a special event that was like a, some kind of an event for, for General Hospital it was called Fan Day. And so Real Andrews, what he did is he, he rented out a ballroom in the Hollywood Hotel. And then what he wanted to do is he wanted to have this pastor come and he had all these fans there and actually preach the gospel. And so the pastor said when he arrived, he said it was surreal to say the least. He says he walked in and there were these hundreds of fans for Real Andrews. He said, to me, it was just my friend from church, but to those fans, he was this incredible star on a legendary soap opera. And when I came in, they were playing a trivia game in which the fans competed to show who knew the most about Real Andrews. They knew everything about him. They certainly knew a lot more than I knew. They knew where he was born, which high school he went to, the ages of his kids. So I'm sitting there a little amazed, he said, and a little weirded out by the whole thing. He says, but then it struck me by the fact that all these fans seemed to know him better than I did. But if you think about it, that's not really true. The fans didn't really know the real, real Andrews. They just knew about him. They knew facts and trivia, but I knew him as a personal friend. I knew what his journey in Christ was. I knew his family personally. 
I had a personal and close relationship as his pastor, but also his friend. They knew his TV character, but I knew his true character, the character of a man. And so the question for you and I this morning is, do you know about Jesus or do you know him? Now, in Jesus' day, there were many that claimed to know God, but really they only knew about God. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 8, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. My prayer for you this morning is that you know him as your Savior, your Lord, your friend, in Jesus' name. Two things. What should Christians do when trouble hits? First, if you know Jesus, you know the Father. Second, Jesus has a home waiting for us in heaven, and here's the third one. Trust there is power when we pray in His name. Trust that there is power when we pray in His name. I don't know if you know this, but you have access to unlimited power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is within you. But we access that power through prayer, seeking God's help. Look at verses 12 through 14. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me and the works that I do, he will also do greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, so he starts out here, truly, truly. When you see that, that means listen up, very important. Don't get distracted. If you're going to fall asleep, don't fall asleep right now. Really important, truly, truly, you want to hear this. And then he makes this astonishing promise. He says, you know, the works that I've done, you're going to do greater works than these. Now, I don't know how you feel when you read that, but I kind of stopped and went, really? (laughs) Because I ain't seen people doing greater works than Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, you know, amazing miracles and stuff like that. And, and so when you think about the disciples, they did some miracles, but I don't think they did more miracles than Jesus or greater miracles than Jesus, although they did perform miracles. So what are they talking about here? And so as I researched, just about everybody I read thinks about the same thing. The works that Jesus is speaking about here is the spread, the extent of the work, and he's actually talking about the spread of the gospel. The spread of the gospel is incredible after Jesus dies and ascends to heaven. If you think about it, when Jesus was on earth, when he ascended to heaven, they estimate maybe somewhere around 500 or so people were believers or followers of Christ. And Jesus, he basically only preached in the Palestine area. And in terms of his outreach to Gentiles, only a couple really spoke to him. But when you think about what happened when he died and ascended to heaven, what happened? The Holy Spirit came. By the way, that's what he means, that he has to go from the Father. The Father's going to give the Spirit to us. We have the Spirit now in Christ. As a matter of fact, he's going to say in John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. We're given this Holy Spirit. They're given the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, you have them leaving out of Jerusalem and Judea into the outer parts of the world, and they're preaching the gospel. They reach the Gentile nations through Peter and through Paul. Think about Peter's first sermon, his very first sermon. 3,000 people are added to the church that day. That's the greater extent that he's speaking about. Are miracles available? Yeah, if God wants to do them. But I think the greater works he's talking about is 
the extent of the gospel that will go out, those that come to Christ and billions have believed since Jesus has been gone. But how do we have access to this? It's through the power of prayer. And it's in His name. Now again, this is confusing for people. When they hear that idea about praying in Jesus' name, they instantly just think, oh, I just kind of tack that on to any prayer I got. It's kind of like a magic wand. Whoop! I said in Jesus' name and God has to give me what I want. Let me just tell you up front, this does not mean you get whatever you want. All right? I'm just going to lay that out there right up front. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name and He will do it? The prayer that is powerful, it has some conditions. The first condition is this. God hears the power of His people. God hears, I'm sorry, the prayer of His people. God hears, hears the prayer of His people. The Bible doesn't speak about God listening and hearing and answering the prayers of unbelievers, but it does say here particularly that it is a promise that He hears your prayer, that He will respond to it. Now, He may not always respond the way we want, but He will respond. For Christians, it's not just a possibility, it's a promise. What does it mean in my name? To ask Jesus in His name, I think, is three things when we're praying. First, it means that our prayer is consistent with His will and for His purpose. When we pray in Jesus' name, it means we're praying for the purposes of God to be done and everything that aligns with His will. Why would I say that? Because that was Jesus' prayer that He taught them to pray. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So first, we want to pray, and we know that this prayer will be answered when we're praying for the Father's will to be done, and it's for His purpose. Second, we must approach God based on the merits of Christ and not ourselves. We have nothing within us that we can approach God, but in Him, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. And it is in His righteousness that we approach God. It's not our own stuff that we approach Him. And third, to express a sincere desire that God would be glorified and that the Lord would be glorified by our prayer. So three things. Is it consistent with His will and purpose? Do we understand we only have access through what Jesus has done? And third, we want Him to receive the glory we're not praying for our own glory, for our own way. Now, I remember when I was a salesman a long time ago, and I was on the freeway, and Karen and I were kind of tight that month, and I'm driving on the freeway, and they had this huge sign. It was one of those lotto signs. And it was one of those lotto signs that have the, the numbers that change, so they have the one moving kind of fast, and it was up to over $250 million. And so I said an arrow prayer. I said, God, if you let me win that, I'll give you half. Now, was that for his glory or for my glory? Can I be honest? It was for his, not for his glory, it was for my glory. I wanted $125 million. And so often, that's how we approach God. I think often we approach God for our glory and not his glory. So often we have things that we want or we think they should be this way, and if he answers them this way, then we'll do this. And, you know, we work all these things out because we think we've somehow earned this right to come before his presence and ask him to do these things for us. Lord, I've been in church for a long time and I've served you for all these years and I've done these things for you, so shouldn't you then? You know, I read the story by R.A. Torrey. 
This is at the beginning of the 20th century, and he was a very well-known pastor and speaker, and he's speaking in Melbourne. And before he gets up to speak at the lectern, somebody hands him a note, and, and so he reads it, and it says, Dear Dr. Tory, I'm in great perplexity. I've been praying for a long time for something that I'm confident is according to God's will, but I don't get it. I mean, I've been a member of my church for 30 years, and I've tried to be a consistent Christian all that time. I've been a superintendent of the Sunday school for 25 years, and I've been an elder in my church for 20 years, and yet God does not answer my prayer, and I cannot understand it. Can you explain to me? Now, Tori took this note, and he actually got in front of the whole congregation, and he, re- and he read it to them, and then he answers it. He says, it's perfectly easy to explain. This man thinks, because he's been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school and superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in his church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He is really praying in his own name. And God will not hear the prayer when we come in our own name. He says, we must, if we would have God answer our prayers, give up any thought that we have any claim upon God. There's not one of us who deserves anything from God. As a matter of fact, if we got what we deserved, each one of us would spend an eternity in hell. But Jesus Christ has great claims on God. And we should go to Him humbly in our prayers on the ground of His goodness, not ourselves. We go to Him on the grounds of Jesus' claim. At the close of that meeting, that man walked up to Him and said, you hit the nail on the head. Forgive me. And he repented of his sin. We come to Christ. If you want a prayer that's answered, say, Lord, I come in Your name. It's You Lord, I want your will to be done. And I want you to be glorified by this request that I have. And when you pray like that, God's going to answer that prayer. As a way of application, when things get tough, three things. Remember, he has a, a place in heaven for you. We have something to look forward to. Remember and trust that, that the Father loves you. He knows you because of the Son. And lastly, we have an advocate with the Father. And we can come at any moment, at any time, when things are tough, and bring Him our requests, when we bring it in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's close. Well, Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You, Lord, for the truth of the Scriptures, and even this simple message here, how good You are to us, Lord. Father, I thank You how Jesus spoke to the disciples, and He made these promises. I thank You, Lord, how, how they were struggling, Lord, but then You just made it so clear to them. Lord, thank You for dying for us and giving us access to You. And, and Lord, thank You that we have a, a home waiting for us in heaven. I thank You, Lord, that we're reconciled to God, that we, we know the Father now, and that Lord, we can come at any point, at any time in prayer and seek you. So, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.